um, we'll talk about that later. All right, let's go to the Bible. Uh, we're going to open up the Bible, please, to the book of Mark. Um, we have been in, we did it, we started a series in the book of Mark ages ago. Um, like we did like three or four weeks and then we stopped for ages, uh, but we're back. And I think we'll be in Mark for a while, a little while. And so um, if you guys haven't caught the kind of beginning end of the series, go back to our podcast and have a listen to some of the Mark sermons. I think it'll give you an idea of where we're at. Um, but we're in Mark chapter 2 today, verse 18 to 22. Mark chapter 2, verse 18 to 22. And I'm going to read this for us before we hear the sermon for today. Mark chapter eight, uh, 2, verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins." And the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Amen. Uh, thank you, Peter. Um, as Peter mentioned with the chairs, if there's one thing, like, I want you to think about as you set up your chairs, um, however long we end up doing it, um, that it'll be a reminder to all of us that we're not here, like, no one's here for a free ride. Right? Everyone here, even if, like, there's your first time, we're all here to contribute to something, not just to receive something. And so even as you set up your own chair, it's, it's a burden. Uh, maybe that'll remind you that right, we're all here to give. Right? Um, and yeah, as, as Peter also said, we're going back into Mark, and the, the original plan was always that we're going to stick through Mark for a little bit, and then we'll jump somewhere else. We'll come back to Mark. We'll jump somewhere else. And so at this time, we're back at Mark. We'll be here for at least a month or two. And so Mark chapter 2. Now, as I begin, I want to ask you, have you ever uh, been uh, misunderstood, uh, judged wrongly? Right? I'm sure we have. Maybe you acted out of good intentions, and it, it wasn't received well, and the person who should have received it well responded badly. You know, many years ago, I was driving home from Hornsby. Uh, I was passing through Pimble, and there's this road, like this traffic light in Pimble, I don't know if you know it, uh, where depending on the time of day, the road changes. And so as you get to this traffic light, I think, you know, at certain times, it turns into three lanes, and what you do is you just keep going straight, and you stop at the traffic light. And at certain times of the day, uh, they change it, and instead of going straight, you need to swerve left, right, and then stop, right, because they put up these orange poles there, and if you keep going straight, you're going to hit the poles. Right? And so I was driving home from Hornsby one day, and it was at the time of day where you couldn't go straight, they put the orange poles there, and so I had to swerve left a bit, before coming to a stop. And so I'm coming to this uh, red traffic light, and I slowly start turning my car to swerve left, when suddenly I see at the corner of my eye the car on the left lane, like, start coming toward me, right? They're, they're not swerving left. And I can just sense, it's like slow-mo, if you've ever been in that moment. I can know that the car's about to hit me. And so I kind of jerk my car to the right a bit, trying to get out of their way. 
there's not much space I have because the orange poles are there, and if I swerve too far to the right, I'm going to crash. And the, the, the person in that car starts beeping. It's like, it's like crazy, right? And in the last minute, the car swerves out of my way, back into their lane, right, where they belong, right, back into their lane, and we stop right, at the red traffic light. I'm flustered. I'm sweaty. I'm feeling a lot of emotions, but you now I'm thinking, I'm a Christian. Right? Forgiveness. Right? Grace, I'm going to let it go. I'm going to let it go, right? And so I'm thinking, I should turn around to the person and just you know, make eye contact and give them a smile or a nod, you know, just, just to let them know it's okay. I mean, they must feel so bad, you know, for nearly crashing into me. I'm just going to assure them. And so I turn around to look at the person in the car, and there's this old grandmother staring at me, glaring at me with eyes like dagger, right? Like I did something wrong. She's staring straight at me and she goes, <laughs> and then she drives off with a green light. Right? I felt so misunderstood, right? Because I'm the good guy here, right? And she's treating me like I'm the bad guy. I'm innocent. She's guilty, but the way she's responding is the opposite way. It's like she's innocent and I'm guilty. I tried to help her by swerving away and forgive her and smile in a direction, but she condemned me right, for something that I didn't even do. Right? And that whole Christian and forgiveness thing, I threw that out of the window for the next five minutes and I felt really angry for a while. And this is a tiny example that, you know, of what Jesus must have felt throughout his life. Right, if there was ever a person that was misunderstood, I think Jesus would be the most misunderstood person to have ever lived. He was the good guy, treated like a bad guy, like a criminal, right, and crucified on a cross. He was innocent. Everyone around him was guilty, but people treated it the opposite way as if they were innocent, and Jesus is guilty, right, and they condemned him. And Jesus came to help, to help the world, God in his love, he would enter the world, be born, live, and then die for the sins of mankind. And yet people would, would crucify him, right? judge him, shake their heads at him. Right? That was the life of Jesus. But even today, right, in our like, life, as we look around in our world, Jesus is misunderstood today as well. People question him. You know, why do you have so many rules, Jesus. Who are you to say that, you know, you're the only one who can bring salvation? Right? They judge him for his perception of the world, of things that are right and things that are wrong. Even today, Jesus is misunderstood. You know, in today's passage, the people around him misunderstand him. And they misunderstand him in two really important areas that I think even today, people misunderstand Jesus. And these two misunderstandings lead to a lot of confusion and a lot of bad conclusions. Right? Bad confusion, bad conclusions. But if we could get these two areas right and understand and know Jesus well in these two areas, we would avoid confusion and avoid coming to bad conclusions. And so we're going to look at these two areas today and hopefully by the end of what I say today, you will know Jesus a bit better in these two areas areas. Right? And the first one is this, who Jesus is. 
Do you know, do you understand who Jesus is? The people in our passage misunderstood. Verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Right? So here's the question that you know, Jesus will respond to throughout our passage. The question is, why don't your disciples fast? Or why aren't your disciples fasting? Fasting, just in a very simple way, was giving up food so that I might draw near to God. Right? And the whole process was a process of like mourning and sorrow and sadness and I'm giving up food. I'm coming to God and I'm, I'm feeling like downcast as I think about you know, my sin. And it feels like a legitimate question because fasting is meant to be like this holy thing. And so the disciples of John are fasting. The disciples of the Pharisees are fasting. And Jesus, you're saying that you're holy, but why is it that you're not making your disciples fast? Right? Isn't fasting important? Isn't it a holy thing? Isn't it a good, godly thing? Well, then why aren't you and your disciples fasting? Now, that's the question. And they ask that because, number one, they've misunderstood who Jesus is. And so Jesus answers them, verse 19. He says, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Right? I love how Jesus answers their question with a question. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as, the bride, as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Right, if you've been married, or you know, if you haven't been married, that's, that's okay. But you know, for, for my wife and I, the more years that pass since our wedding, the more our memory of that day kind of goes away. Right? You just forget. And all you're left with are photos. That's why you pay so much money, right? If you've been married, you know, a lot of money to, to take these photos because that, that's what, all you have left, right, eventually. And so once in a while, my wife and I would open up our wedding book and would go through the photos. These perfect pictures of, you know, that wonderful day. We've got these gorgeous photos of the church and the church looks perfect, the sun's streaming in and we really loved the place that we got married in. It's perfect, Uni and I, my wife, we, we look perfect, you know, it's our youth, our skin is like all smooth and we, we're so full of joy and we don't look tired because we haven't had kids yet, you know, life is great, we're having naps, right, what's a nap, we wouldn't know anymore. And in the background, we've got our friends and family smiling, happy for us, right, they look perfect. But as we scan these photos of all the smiling faces, we eventually find like a distant relative or someone who didn't even know who they are, my parents invited them, not happy, right, not smiling. I don't know if your wedding photos have that. Like everyone's smiling, but this person looks like super bored. It's like they're angry that they're there and on their face, you can tell it's written, why am I here? Right? I gave up golf for this, right? It's just right there on their face. And whenever we see those faces, like we get offended, because this is a wedding, right? It doesn't matter even if you don't know us, right? Because of us, because it's our day, because it's our special moment, you should be smiling. You should be happy, right? Because if there's ever one day that you're not allowed to be sad, it's a wedding. And when you go to someone's wedding, even if you've had a bad week, you should smile and be joyful because it's their day, 
the bride and groom, and for them, smile, be filled with joy. And so Jesus talks about the, this right, in his answer. Right? He's talking about a wedding. And the people who would have heard it would have understood this whole idea that you, know, you need to be happy in a wedding because you know, in the context, Jewish people, their weddings lasted a whole week. Over seven days sometimes of celebration and joy and talking and eating. And Jesus is saying right now, it's not a time to fast. Like a wedding is a time to be joyful. It's a time to be happy, not mournful. Celebrate. But why is it like a wedding? Right? If you look at what Jesus says, he repeats this. He talks about the bridegroom. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. He's saying this is like a wedding because the bridegroom, right, the groom, the main person is here with you. When I officiate weddings, I, I say this phrase. Right before the bride comes in, I say, this is the moment we've been waiting for. And it is. We've waited for that moment. Right? And in our context in the Western culture, it's the bride. You know, Jesus is talking about the groom, but you know, same thing. This is the moment we've waited for. And the bride's been driving around in circles, coming late on purpose, right? <laughs> increasing our anticipation. At some weddings, it's like an hour, you're just waiting there, waiting, waiting, waiting. And suddenly, this is the time. The person that we wanted to see is going to come through that door. We've waited for this. Right? And the doors open, the music plays, the bride comes in. It's all about them. This is the moment we've waited for. And Jesus is saying, that's me. This is the moment all of history and all people have been waiting for. Waiting for me. Waiting for me to enter into the world and now I am here. Jesus is, since creation, right, the, the core character. He's the main person. Everything throughout all of time, ever since creation, has been pointing and waiting for Jesus, the bridegroom. Now, in the Old Testament, the bridegroom was an image used to speak about God. God was the bridegroom in the Old Testament. So when Jesus says, I'm the bridegroom, he's saying, I am God. And God has stepped into this world. Can you imagine standing before God, that he would be in the room with us. Is that who you think Jesus is? If the people around Jesus understood who Jesus really was, they understood he was the bridegroom, that he was God, that he was the one who had come into the world to be their answer, to be their king, to be their Lord, to be their solution, to be their redeemer, if they really understood, then they would know this isn't a time for mourning. It's not a time to be sorrowful. This is a time to be amazed and celebrate. God is right here with us. You know, that one of the core purposes of fasting, I said, was to draw near to God. But if God is right there in front of you, why would you need a fast? No, no, you don't fast. Right? You add the E. You, you feast. And you celebrate that God is there. And so the people misunderstood who Jesus was. In their minds, he was just another person. 
another teacher, rabbi, leader. But the moment you understand who Jesus really is, you don't ask questions like this. You know, for us as well in our lives, I feel like a lot of the confusion we come to, a lot of the bad conclusions we end up at is because we've failed to really attribute to Jesus who he is. To be able to say, Jesus, you're not just another person, not just another teacher, not just another leader, not just a human king even. You are God who has come in the flesh. You are the one that throughout all of history we've been waiting for. And because you stepped into the world, everything has changed. That's you. There's no one like you. And because you are all these things, I submit my life to you. Right? If we were able to get that, I think a lot of our confusions and bad conclusions would go away. The question, who, who, do, you, who do you think you are, Jesus, to tell me how to live? Right? I think that is birthed out of a failure to you know, attribute who Jesus to who he is. I mean, if Jesus is God and he created the world, this is his universe. He gets to make the rules. He gets to tell you how to live. I mean, that makes sense. If we let Jesus be who he really is. Who are you, Jesus, to say you're the only way to God? If Jesus is God, right, God the Son, then yes, he's the right person to tell us how to get back to the Father. Because we fail to let Jesus be the main character, it ends up, you know, we read the Bible, we make it about us. We come to church, we make it about us. We serve in church, we make it about us. All of that is the result of failing to attribute to Jesus who he really is. We end up coming to some bad conclusions as well. When we don't make Jesus God, and we make him another prophet or a teacher or a savior, then we conclude that Jesus isn't the way to salvation. You know, Judaism, right, the religion, the Jewish religion today is there. They will believe that Jesus might have been, you know, a, a great man, but he's not God. Not the Messiah we'd, wait, we'd waited for. And they've come to a radically different conclusion than where we are as Christians. Who is Jesus to you? Do you really attribute to Jesus who he says he is? Unless you do that, unless you get that core foundation, you'll get to a lot of confusion and bad conclusions. The second thing, what Jesus came to do. If the first misunderstanding from the people was that they misunderstood who Jesus was, and because of that, they asked this question about fasting, the second misunderstanding is that they didn't understand what he came to do. And because of that, again, they ask this question about fasting. Jesus responds again in verse 21 to 22, and he gives two analogies, and we're just going to break them down in a, uh, at this time. The first analogy is found in verse 21. Jesus says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does the patch... Right, the new unshrunk cloth that you've patched over the hole with, it will tear away from the old garment, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Okay, well, what's Jesus talking about? You know, again, we're in a different context, but the people who heard this would have understood. Because they lived in a world where they didn't have synthetic material. 
And so no matter what you know, your clothing was made of, the moment you wash it, it would shrink. Right? You know some of our clothes do that? And so if you washed a, clo- a, a new piece of garment or cloth, it would shrink. Right? But then it'd stay that shape after a while, after a few washes. And so Jesus is saying, you don't take an old garment that is already shrunk with a hole in it and put on a new piece of cloth. Because the moment you wash that fixed garment, that piece of cloth, which is new, only that would shrink, and the rest of the garment would stay the same way. And as it shrinks, it would then rip a bigger hole than was already there. And so the point that Jesus is making here is that you don't take new and old and mix it together, right? They don't mix. If you've got a hole in an old garment, put an old cloth on it. Or if you've got a hole in a new garment, you can put new cloth on it, old with old, new with new, but don't mix new and old. Right? Does it kind of make sense? Right? Does it make sense? I'm moving on anyway. Verse 22. It gives another analogy. Same point. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Again, it's, the, it's saying what is common sense to the people there. You know, back then, they would make wineskin out of you know, dead animals. They'd, they'd skin the animal, and with new wineskin... They would put new wine because what happened with new wine is that it would ferment and it would expand. And the new wineskin, because it's new, was supple, flexible. It would expand as the new wine expands. But over time, the wineskin, left in the sun, it aged, it would get harder and harder. It would become more brittle. Right? It wouldn't be as flexible. And so if you take an old wineskin that was just lying around and you put new wine into it, the new wine would ferment and expand, but the wineskin would, wouldn't be able to be flexible with it. It would crack, it would burst. You'd end up losing both the wine and the wineskin. And so what Jesus is saying, again, it's the same thing. You don't mix new with old. Got old wine, put it in old wineskin, fine, right? It's not going to expand. You got new wine, put it into new wineskin, great, right? Because the wineskin expands with the wine, but you can't mix the two. Right, don't mix new with old. New and old don't mix, he's saying. That's his point. They're not compatible. Right, what, but still, what, what is he talking about? Jesus is saying he came to do something new. And as long as the people are thinking in the old way, they will not be able to understand Jesus. Because the old and new don't mix. They need to give up the old way so that they might accept the new way that Jesus is talking about. The old way was this idea that we need to do things to be acceptable to God. That was the old way. We need to do things. We need to you know, try hard. We need to tick the boxes so that you know, we'll stand before God and God will say, wow, you did those things. You prayed. You went to church. You read your Bible. You fasted. Good job, you're acceptable to me now. That was the old way. And Jesus is saying, you need to get rid of the old way because that's not the way that I operate. What I'm doing is really the opposite of that old way. You see, that's why the people were asking this question about fasting. Because in their minds, they're thinking that way. We need to do things to be acceptable to God. You know, in the context of fasting in the Old Testament, 
There's only one fast the people had to do. It was during the Day of Atonement, one time in the year. That was the only compulsory fast. Everything else is voluntary. Right? You can do it if you want. You don't have to do it. Right? It's, not, it's not a command from God. But over time, right, the Pharisees especially would add more and more things that weren't in the Bible, but saying, you've got to do it. Right? So if you don't do it, we're going to look down on you. You're not as holy. And one example is that what the Pharisees did is that they fasted twice a week. Right? That's, that's, that's pretty awesome, right? Mondays and Thursdays was their thing. They would fast twice a week, give up food and pray or whatever. And that's not a bad thing in itself. But what it evolved into, again, is this idea that because I've fasted, I've done these things, I'm now more acceptable to God. I'm more holy. I'm a better person. And so if I fasted twice this week and you didn't, well, I think God loves me a bit better than you because I've done the right things. That's the old way of thinking. And that's how people have fallen into the trap of. But we find this in a parable Jesus tells in Luke 18. Okay. In Luke 18, Jesus tells a parable of a tax collector and a Pharisee. You might know this one. And the tax collector is really uh, sorrowful and mournful of his, of his sin. It says he won't even look up to heaven, right, because he's so grieved by his sin. And then on the other side, you've got this Pharisee who, who does the right things, right? And in his prayer, he even says, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men, right? I'm better than other people. And he says, I fast twice a week. He's saying, God, I'm so good do all these things. I fast twice a week. That guy doesn't fast. I'm better than them. I've done the right things. I'm more acceptable. And this is the mentality that drove this question about fasting. See, the people asked Jesus, why don't your disciples fast? Because in their minds, they're thinking, you have to do these things to be holy. And aren't you a holy man? And aren't these people holy people? Well, why aren't they ticking the boxes? Why aren't they fasting? But remember, there was only one fast that they really needed to do once a year. But they're saying, no, 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 you're not doing these things. And that's not the way Jesus operates. Jesus is saying, that's the old way. And you need to get rid of that way. Because the way that I'm going to tell you, the way that I'm going to bring salvation, this new thing is not uh, a salvation that is earned by what you do. You're not accepted because you fast. You're not holy because you read your Bible or you pray. That's not the new way. Jesus did not come to bring people more things to do so that they might be acceptable to God. He came to do the opposite. He came to do all the things we were meant to do. So that if we believe in him, if we would just believe in him, we would be accepted by God. Just like that. In true faith and repentance right, from our old way of living, if we really just come to him and believe in Jesus, we will be accepted by God. It's not by attendance, it's not by Bible reading, it's not by prayer, it's not because you're sitting here, it's not because you fasted, none of those things. It's not what you do, it's what Jesus has done. 
That's the new way. And to really understand that new way, you need to get rid of the old. Because it's either one of those two. It's either Jesus did it all for me, or I need to do something. They don't mix. You know, sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking, yes, Jesus did it all for me. But I'm accepted by God because Jesus did it all. Oh, but I... I need to pray, I need to read my Bible, and then you, you go through a week where you haven't even touched your Bible or prayed, and you feel like, oh, I don't think God loves me right now. That's the old and the new trying to mix. It doesn't work that way. Right now, regardless of the week that you've had, regardless of the good that you did or didn't do, regardless of the sins that you committed, you were accepted by God because of Jesus, full stop. That's the new way. Got to get rid of the old way of thinking that what you do makes you acceptable to God. He loves you and accepts you and welcomes you because of Jesus. Do you have faith in Him? That is a new way. There is nothing left for us to do. Jesus did it all. The people in the, in the time of Jesus, they, they weren't thinking that way. They kept falling back into the mentality that we've got to work, we've got to do to be accepted. We need to get rid of that way of thinking. Now in the new way, according to Jesus, we still fast. We still come to church, we still pray, we read our Bible, we do those same things. But we don't do them to be loved or accepted by God. We do them because we already are loved. We already are accepted by God. We fast because we know that in Jesus, if we turn to God, we will find Him. It's promised. We are loved. And so then we forego food and we focus our minds on God because we know that in Jesus, He won't reject us. He will welcome us. And from that place of love, we go to Him. From that place of love, not for love, from love, from acceptance. And that's what this passage here is saying. Right? You've probably read this a lot of times if you've been at church. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This isn't your own doing. It is the gift of God. How are you saved? It says, by grace. That's God being vastly generous and good to you beyond what you deserve. You didn't deserve salvation. God has been generous to you in saving you. And what we do is we have faith. What's it say? This isn't your doing. You you didn't do this. You didn't save yourself. You didn't make yourself lovable. You didn't make yourself acceptable. Jesus did that. It's a gift. Gifts are free. But if someone gives you a gift and you pay them back, it's not a gift. You just bought it. Gifts are free. Accept this. Verse 9, it's not a result of works. Again, you didn't work this so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. So we're saved not by works, but we are saved for works. That's what verse 10 says. So works doesn't come before the love or the acceptance, works comes 
after the love and the acceptance. We are loved by faith. And from that place, work, obey, pray, Bible. Like all of that comes because we already are loved and accepted by God. This is the new way. And you need to get rid of the old way of thinking to really understand and live in this. When we fail to attribute to Jesus this, what he has really come to do, again, we end up with a lot of confusion and a lot of bad conclusions. Some of the confusions include, again, that God doesn't accept or love me today because I didn't do the right things. Christians, we fall into this trap all the time. Like we were saved by grace, I get it. And then we keep working. We keep working to be on the good side of God. That's not how it works. We fall into the trap of, you know, feeling that these things that I just mentioned, Bible, prayer, fasting, going to church, things we have to do. But we don't have to do these. When we think of these as things we have to do, they become duty, and the joy of them is, is sucked out. These are things we don't have to do, but we choose to do. We choose to do it because we love God, so we choose to pray because we want to speak to Him. We choose to read the Bible because we want to hear from Him. We don't have to do it. None of us have to do it. But if you're not doing it, you're missing out. It's always tricky talking about this. You don't have to do it, but do it anyway. Because you love God. That's the way it works. Sometimes we choose to sin because we say, I'm forgiven anyway. This is a misunderstanding of what Jesus came to do. You know, in verse 20, Jesus says this, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. When the bridegroom is taken away, then Christians will mourn and be sorrowful and they will fast. That word taken away is basically repeated in Isaiah chapter 53. And there it says this, talking about the Messiah, this is Old Testament, Isaiah. It's talking about the one who is to come, the Savior. The Savior was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment, he was taken away, it says. There's the same word, taken away. Isaiah is talking about the moment when the Savior will be snatched away. That word taken away is a violent word. It's like snatched violently away. He'll be taken away like a lamb that will die, right? If you're a Christian, you know that this passage is pointing to the cross, it talks about when Jesus will be snatched away from his disciples because he's betrayed. He's arrested, trialed, crucified on a cross. And on the cross, he's afflicted, he's oppressed, he won't open his mouth, but like a sheep, he will sacrifice himself and shed his blood for the sins of mankind. And then, Jesus says, verse 20, disciples will fast. And they will mourn and they will be sorrowful because they will understand what Jesus came to do. He came to die for our sins, and they'll understand the cost. The cost is that Jesus, like a lamb, was slaughtered, that he died. He took our judgment and our wrath, and he was taken away. If you really understand what Jesus came to do, this new way, 
which is free salvation for us, you will also understand that it was immeasurably costly for him to give us that free salvation. He was snatched away and sacrificed like a lamb. When you understand that, we wouldn't say, I'm going to sin, I'm, gonna, I'm forgiven anyway. Because you understand what Jesus really came to do and what it cost for Jesus to do that. With the disciples, you will mourn and you will grieve the fact that Jesus was slaughtered in our place for our sins. When we fail to understand what Jesus did, we come to some bad conclusions as well. Every other religion has failed to understand this, this new way that Jesus brought. Every other religion says, work, work, try harder, do better, climb to God, climb, climb, climb to God. And if you fail today, try harder tomorrow. That's every other religion. Fail to understand this new thing that Jesus brought. Salvation by grace, by faith alone. Some people come to the bad conclusion that because they're not good enough, they don't belong in church. Because they're not good enough, God would never accept them. It's because they failed to understand this. What Jesus is saying is that that is completely true. You are not good enough. But that is then the starting point to your salvation. None of us here are good enough. We're not coming to God and gathering in church because we're good enough. I'm not here because I'm good enough. I know I am not good enough. That's why I need to come to church. That's why I need Jesus. Because He is good enough for me. Right? He was perfect in my place. That's why we're here. And we need to understand this new way. I wonder how many people in this world are really confused because they've misunderstood these two things. Misunderstood who Jesus really was. That he is not just another person, not another leader or prophet, that he is God and attribute that to him and fail to understand what Jesus came to do. He came to bring about a new thing. It's radically different from everything else in every other religion. It's hard to really understand. Are you sure it's free? I can, I can just be saved? There must be a catch. There isn't. That's the new way, right? When we get these two core cogs figured out, a lot of the confusion and bad conclusions that we come to about Jesus, Christianity, the church, the Bible, goes away. And so I encourage you as I close, I encourage you to begin this journey of investigating Jesus. But if you're sitting here and you're like, I don't think I really know who Jesus is, begin that journey of investigation. Discover who he is. Speak to someone. Can you teach me? Can we work through parts of the Bible together so I can find out who Jesus is? If what I said about Jesus, about this new way, the salvation by grace, doesn't really like, make sense to you, you haven't heard it before, begin that journey today. I encourage you, just take a step to investigate it further. It will blow your mind. It will change everything in your life, I promise you. But grab someone. Grab me. Grab a pastor. Grab a leader. Begin that journey. Just take the next step. You know, I remember in my early years 
before I was a Christian, coming to church with a lot of doubt, with a lot of skepticism, I heard this, and I found this really helpful. But someone said something like this. If you want to learn to swim, you can dip your toe in the water, you can go through the motions out of the water, but eventually, you just need to give it a go. You just need to jump into the water. And I wonder if that's where you are today. Had a lot of thoughts, had a lot of questions, skepticisms. You sat through in church. You've looked around as people sing and as they pray. And you've kind of wondered, you know, what's up with that? And you've got your own, you know, questions about that and doubts. Eventually, if you want to learn to swim, just jump in the water. Just give it a go. The worst thing that will happen is that you'll come out the other end in a few months and say, you know what, this thing's not true. I tried praying, I tried singing, I met up with these people, I read my Bible with them, I don't believe it. That's the worst thing. Right? And you live, live your life. But the best thing, right, what I believe will happen, is that you'll, you'll believe. And all these things, that the doubts stopped you from getting to, namely Jesus, you'll discover that he is true. You'll discover who he really is and the amazing gospel that he gives to you. All right, just give it a go. If you've already started that journey, I invite you as a Christian to continue to plumb the depths of the beauty and wonder of Jesus. I feel like, you know, who Jesus is, we think we get it, but you know, the more we understand Jesus, I'm like, oh wow, Jesus really is perfect. And I could spend a lifetime getting to know him and I'd still be amazed. Continue to plumb the depths of what he did, the gospel. The gospel is so amazing. Right? Again, we'll sing of his grace and his sacrifice for all eternity in heaven. That's how amazing it is. Right? I once heard this analogy. It's like you're, you're standing at the bottom of a mountain looking around and you're like, wow, I, I haven't explored all these things around me. But the higher you climb in the mountain, and you look around, every step that you take up the mountain, the more you realize there's just more out there, more and more that I don't know. And the more you climb, the more you see. The more you climb, the more you see. I, I feel like that's like the Bible and Jesus. The more we get to know Jesus through the Bible, the more we think, wow, I, I know him more, but I know that there's so much more out there for me. And so continue as a Christian to understand who he is and what he has done. Let's spend a bit of time in prayer. Let's close our eyes. You know, this is really, I think, I believe, the place to begin. We begin with Jesus begin by truly understanding knowing and attributing to him who he is right who he says he is and then we begin as well understanding and knowing what it really is that he came to do and accomplish you might have your whole list of questions what does the Bible say about this creation? How come the Bible is against these things? Christians seem so narrow-minded. We've got our whole list of stuff that stops us. But, you know, I just want you to 
put that aside. And I wonder if those questions and confusions are there because you haven't really understood. Understood who He is and what He's come to do. Would you do this with me for the next 30 seconds? If you're ready, if you're in that place, to just jump into the water. To put your doubts aside for a moment and say, God, God, if you're real, I'm giving this a go. I'm going to explore who Jesus is. I want to explore who you are, Jesus, and what you have said you've done. I'm going to give myself this next month to just you know, jumping in with faith, giving it 100%. I want to sing like you are real. In these next 30 seconds, I want, I want to speak to you as if you're right next to me. And to be honest, I, I don't know if I really believe that, but I'm just going to give that a go. I want to speak to you. And I want to make some practical applications from this week to get deeper into the Bible and into prayer because I want to get to know you. Right? I don't know what that looks like for you. Grab a person. Grab, grab a Christian that might have been at church for longer than you. Maybe you feel like knows more than you. Get into a growth group or go to growth group and if you're already meant to be in one. I don't know what it looks like. But would you do that with me? God, I'm going to give myself for the next month to really investigate you more deeply, more intimately. I'm going to jump in. Can we make that our prayer? Let's pray. Let's pray.